This is Fair Examination on the Mormon Faircast. Fair Examination takes a close look at interesting and sometimes difficult issues facing the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and its members. Fred and Marilyn Mattis are co-authors with Ty Mansfield of the book published by Deseret Book called In Quiet Desperation, Understanding the Challenge of Same-Gender Attraction. Fred and Marilyn are the parents of Stuart Mattis, a young man who struggled with same-gender attraction. After successfully serving a mission for the LDS Church, Stuart returned home and continued to struggle with same-gender attraction for many years until in February of 2000, at the age of 32, he took his own life. Since that time, Fred and Marilyn have reached out to other individuals who experience same-gender attraction and their families to help foster better understanding and support for those who struggle with the unique challenges of same-gender attraction. Fred and Marilyn, welcome to Fair Examination. Good to be here. Let's start by talking about how you first came to find out about your son's same-gender attractions. It was a February, uh, actually it was January 29th, and one of our daughters came to me on a Friday morning and said, Mother, what would you do if you found out Stuart was gay? And I said, I'd cry. She asked me why, and I said, it would break my heart to think one of my children broke his temple covenants. So I thought Stuart had just flown in from New York. He was a consultant for Anderson Consulting, and flew home every weekend from back east, and so I went to his room where he was sitting at his desk and at his computer, and I went in to ask him, and then I thought, how do you ask your 32-year-old son if he has same-gender feelings? And I'm trying to be polite about it and not offend him, and he said, Mother, what you're trying to ask me is, am I gay? And I said, yes, Stuart. And he said, yes, Mother, I am. And it literally was as though lightning went through my entire body. And I grabbed a hold of the doorknob because I could feel my legs giving out from underneath me. And so for the next two hours, he quietly told me the struggle that he had endured for the last 20 years, trying to change, trying to deal with his feelings in denial that he had those feelings, would not face the fact that they were real. He'd had those feelings, and he recognized that um, when he was just in grammar school, he had feelings of attractions to a boy and didn't understand when the boy moved, why he felt so sad. But by the time he was 12, he began to realize what those feelings were all about. But he thought, When I receive the priesthood, those feelings will go away. Well, when I receive my patriarchal blessing, then those feelings will go away. Well, when I go to the temple, when I go on my mission, when I do this, when I do that, and it never happened. And he went on a mission, and he came home, and he struggled with those feelings, and he said he would go to school and come home and study, and then he'd get down on his knees and he would pray all night long. And he'd wake up in the morning where he'd fallen asleep, sobbing, begging and pleading with Heavenly Father to take the feelings away. And he said he'd get up like a zombie and go to school, come back again, go to school, come back again. Night after night, he would pray until he fell asleep, crying 
begging and pleading with Heavenly Father to take the feelings away. How old was he when he first told you this then? He was just a month before he turned 32 that we actually found out. And so we knew for the last 13 months of his life we had, a, had those we had a number of experiences since we lived so close to the Bay, to San Francisco, uh, to be involved with uh, with uh, situations uh, where gay people were were uh, were involved, and we always made light of it. And 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 after we looked back on it, we thought to ourselves how 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 cruel we were, and how misunderstanding we were, and how. Uh, how Stuart felt when he made those statements or did those things, not knowing that he was just struggling inside uh, to, to to deal with them himself. And we never realized that uh, that a son of ours, I mean, good crime, he was Eagle Scout, he was very faithful in the church, he served a mission, he'd been he was an just Elder a, he, president. He, yeah, and he was a good young man. I mean, this couldn't happen to him because this happens to the other people, uh, this happens to someone else, but it... Uh, it was our son. He went to the temple every Friday. You know, how could how could he have these feelings? Right, and, and he wasn't he wasn't acting on those feelings. No, actually he was a gospel doctrine teacher at the time when we found out. And and he'd been a gospel doctrine teacher at a BYU ward. He was going to a Stanford ward um at the time of his death. And so you know, he was always active in church. He was the perfect child. His whole life was spent of trying to be perfect because if I'm perfect, then God will take these feelings away from me. And when they wouldn't go away, then he had to try harder. And there were times when he would deny himself certain privileges of doing things, of going to a movie with friends or doing some activity he wanted to do with his friends. He wouldn't go because he had those feelings and he'd try to punish himself because he wanted, you know, he wanted to be as good as he could possibly be. As, so God would just remove all these feelings because he felt that they were sinful, they were wrong, and he just didn't understand. And actually he was in denial of having those bliss, those feelings but after he told us, um, it was on a weekend when we had family there, and so it really wasn't a time that I felt that I could share it with Fred. And so I waited until everyone left, and it was Sunday evening when I approached Fred with the fact that what Stuart had told me, and Fred in his understated way said, well, this isn't a choice that I would make for him. But the thing is, it's not a choice. It's not learned. And people think that it's a choice and people learn it. And I've had so many discussions with so many people and they say, well, don't you think it's because they've done something inappropriate and therefore, you know, they become addicted to it and so forth? No. Well, you know, there may always be exceptions. But Every young man that I have ever talked to, and we have talked to hundreds, literally hundreds of young men who have had this challenge, and so many tell the same story, that they weren't doing anything wrong. They had never done anything wrong. They were just feelings that they were trying to deal with. So in the case of Stuart, I guess you're saying you weren't able to identify any precipitating cause. Well, when we look back, 
we look back on this life, we realize, oh my goodness, it was it was there, uh, showing itself in in just just a lot of different little ways that we never recognized because this wouldn't happen. This wouldn't be our son. I mean, well, he he had friends. He had girls that he was friends with. He didn't date them, but he was really close. And one of the reasons that he felt comfortable being with girls is that he said, I didn't know how boys looked at each other. And he said, I was always afraid to look in their eyes for fear that they would think, why is he looking at me like that? You know. But, but, at, but at the same time, at the same time, he had a lot of boyfriends. Yes, I mean, friends that were boys friend, in the ward. I mean, they Close did friends. things. Stuart was there, was, was the leader of the gang. I mean, they did things because Stuart wanted to do those things, and, and, and they were fun things. And, and, and one was a star quarterback on the football team and, and wrestlers, and, and, and they, were, they were macho guys, and they loved Stuart. Uh, it was just a, they were just a gang of, of kids. A group of kids. A group of kids <laughs> that they did everything together. They were, and Stuart was the leader of the gang. I mean, they were all, he was very natural uh, around around boy boyfriends about about boys and and around girls. He just didn't. Uh, they they always did things together. There were a group of about twelve of them, and they would always hang out together. Well, we had a, we, we had a pool table in our in our garage. We made our garage into a rumpus room, and they lived there. Uh, they lived there, and it was just a just a way to hang out, and they all hang out together. Close knit group. So what kinds of things, when you mentioned in looking back, you recognized that there were things there that you could have Well, Stuart was a, was, a, was, a, was a Prince fan. I mean, Prince music was, a, was big in his life at that time, and, 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 uh, and he would get these guys doing, doing the funny, kinky things that, that Prince would do. And, well, there are things that they call the expression is gaydar, that you have gaydar. And... And it's stereotypical, but he's very creative, extremely creative and very gifted. And of our children that had music lessons, the piano teacher said he was the one that was gifted. We have since met so many fellows who are so incredibly gifted in the arts. They're the actors, the authors, the composers, the musicians, the architects, the designers, they're so artistic and they're so gifted. Uh, they are really, they're, Stuart was a neatnik of all of our children. He was the neatnik and kind and gentle and thoughtful. And Stuart said one time, people will say, oh, gay people are so, so kind. He said, the reason we're kind is we're hurting so much that we know what it feels like to hurt. And if we see somebody hurting, we want to stop and help them. And he was always that way. I mean, there were times he was always the one that would always reach out to somebody in need. And and he would say, well, if I don't do it, who will? That was just his whole attitude of helping people and blessing their lives and being considerate and thoughtful and kind. And that is that is just so typical of so many of who have this this challenge or these feelings, I guess I should say. We prefer the term same-gender feelings because Stuart did not like the term homosexual. He didn't like the term same-sex. He felt like it implied homosexual behavior. And he said, when I look at a fellow, I don't want to go to bed with him. I'm just attracted to them, he said. And so 
we, Fred and I, prefer the term same-gender feelings and love in the new handbook, the leadership handbook put out by the church, that it refers to homosexual behavior versus same-gender feelings. And there's a complete difference. There's a difference between, between attraction and action. And we also don't like the word sex, almost uh, same-sex attraction, because it has nothing to do with sex. It just has to do with your feelings. And what you do with those feelings is up to you. You can take them one way or you can take them another way. And that's, that's the, the issue with this, this whole issue in the church, is that, that these young men prefer to, to take it in a very spiritual way. And one of the things in that last year of Stuart's life, we knew that he was suicidal. Um, there was a night, it was when we first found out about it, it was January, the end of January. And so in October, one Sunday evening, Fred was away at meetings and Stuart um, had an extended weekend from work. And so we were talking together and he told me then that he had purchased a gun, and it was in the 10-day waiting period. And, of course, I was beside myself with fear that he'd carry out what he said he wanted to do, and I was trying to think of every possible reason why he shouldn't do this. And and as I was talking, I just had this feeling of peace come over me, and I, I couldn't understand why I felt peaceful. It just seemed so wrong. And so when Fred came home from his meeting, I told him what Stuart had said to me, that he had purchased the gun. It wasn't in his possession yet. But I didn't tell him about my feelings because I actually felt bad that I had those feelings. So the next morning, Fred got up early in the morning and went in his office and knelt down and prayed. And he came back and he said that um, when he was talking with Heavenly Father that he began crying so hard he could scarcely talk. And then he said, and then I had this great feeling of peace come over me. And he said, I don't understand why I felt that way. I just know he's in Heavenly Father's hands. We tried for a year to help Stuart know that we loved him, that we validated him, that um, he should share his same-gender feelings with family members and with his friends. And so we told family members, and for the most part, they were all extremely loving and supportive. Not all of his friends were loving and supportive. Some were uh, not kind. And if there's anything that we've learned in the last 12 years since we found out about Stewart's Challenge, that really kind, decent, faithful, active members of the church can really say cruel things when they just don't understand. They we, don't mean to be mean. We feel we feel that the real problem isn't the issue itself. The real problem is our understanding of the issue. And if we understand the issue, then then our whole world changes. I mean, parents understand that they have a good spiritual son or daughter. And if they allow them to, to express their spirituality and express the things they've taught them in, in, in their family and and, and, and deal with them righteously, then, then the, their life will be more fulfilled. We feel that, the, that the, one of the issues that, the, that, that really is a deterrent to the, the whole issue is the word gay. I am gay. Well, you are not gay. You have same-gender feelings. I use an example. 
when I'm talking to these 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 fellows that that uh, I say they put your hand in front of your face uh, or, or paper take a paper and put it in front of your face and I ask them what they what do they see and uh, and they said I see the paper and I said now take that paper or your hand and stretch it out as far as you can and then what do you see well I see the paper and I see the wall I see the ceiling I see the people around me I see the flowers I see everything I said that's the same with this issue if you make that issue your the only thing you see in your life, then you're going to be uh, you're going to have difficulty with dealing with it, because that's the, that's not the only thing in your life that's uh, that's uh, an issue. You have other things in your life: the trees, the flowers, everything around you, your talents, your gifts, uh, your abilities. That's all part of your life, also. And and I say it's not you're not gay, because I tell them how do you deal with who you are? I mean, you can't put your hands around who you are. You can't cast it aside and that's what the world wants you to think this is who I am so this is what I do but if you if you realize it's just uh, just feelings you have then you can deal with feelings you can deal with them you can accept them you can put them aside you can do whatever you want with them and and I and I feel that's that's the real issue of understanding you know I think the church has really done a lot to try to change our our vocabulary about the way we talk about these things uh, outside the church I think it's pretty typical for people to say, I am gay or I'm homosexual. And, you know, I think it's really helpful in the church when we're drawing a distinction between behavior and feelings so that we give room for people to avoid certain behavior uh, if they want to, even though they're having certain feelings. So when somebody tells me they're gay or they're homosexual, it's hard for me to know what does that mean? Are they making a political statement? Are they making a statement about the sexual activity that they're engaging in? Or are they simply communicating that they're experiencing same-gender feelings? And so I do think it's very helpful for people who are expressing themselves and trying to share their position with their family members or members in their ward if they communicate in terms of saying that they're, they're experiencing same-gender feelings rather than they are homosexual because not only do we have the question of identity, but there's also the, all the baggage that goes along with the political issues and with the activity that, uh, that people who have same-gender feelings sometimes engage in. Well, I think, I think parents especially uh, need to understand that, that, uh, that it's not them they need to be uh, helpful with and, and concerned about. It's the individual because so often parents are are are, are taking this issue to themselves and, and making it a part of them. In other words, in other words, they're embarrassed. Don't don't tell your friends. I mean, keep it to yourself. Uh, we've had we had uh, a young man that sent us a letter and, and and he said, "I'd like to talk to my parents about it, but I don't know how they'll feel." Hang with they how they feel. I mean, let them know. Let them help. Let them reach out. But sometimes parents. Uh, Assume the issue themselves, like, like what do people think of us? What do they think of our family? I mean, so what? Hang it. Not, you should be worried about yourself. You should be worried about your, your son or your daughter and how you can help them. It is a difficult thing for most of them to approach their parents. They're always concerned about, okay, I tell mom and dad that I have these feelings. Then they'll think I'm not going to have any grandchildren and and we know some young men who actually have told families, and the families have not been supportive. And one young man was 19, and he had to leave home. And they just said, 
do not come around to family gatherings. Do not because we do not want you around our grandchildren or the family members. And what did he do? He went off and lived the lifestyle because where else do they go? That's why we frequently have parents who call us or ask if they can come visit with us, and we say, absolutely. And the one thing we say to them, don't close the door to your children. If you close the door, then they'll go to the world. Where, where else will they go if they have no other place to go? But the world is out there with open arms to accept them and to bring them in. But if you don't keep that door open, regardless of what they do, regardless of what decisions they make, you keep that door open. You keep your arms out. You keep you love them. You accept them. And, and they'll be back. Well, and some parents feel that they're walking a fine line, and they are walking a fine line. They think, well, if I show kindness and love, then that means I'm condoning. Well, you're not condoning. You're just accepting your child who has feelings that you don't understand. If they are in a relationship, we actually have friends who have a son um, that are in a relationship, and it was hard for them. I mean, they felt like, what do we do when, when he brings his partner into our home? Where do we go with this? And And they felt like, we can't close the door to him. And, and so they bore their testimony to their son, they, and they said it in front of his partner, that how they felt. And then as Elder Holland said, not Elder Holland, but Elder Oak said, you don't have to hit them on the head every time they walk through the door. You've borne your testimony. They know how you, you feel. And so you still love your children. The Savior still loves us when we make mistakes or when we're tempted. He doesn't turn us away and say, I don't want you anymore. And so they show love and compassion. It's not that they're accepting the lifestyle, the behavior. They're just loving their child. In our congregations, we have all kinds of people. Some people are more worthy than others because of their actions. So so they are. But what has the Savior said? I, I love you all. And, you know, sometimes it's, it's very difficult to to uh, to show love and and uh, and uh, an appreciation for for someone who's not living quite the way you want them to live. But uh, if a person comes into your congregation, we had a interesting had an interesting thing about our bishop. Uh, we have a young man that uh, lives uh, in another state, and he has full blown AIDS, and he's a convert to the church about four years now, and uh, and he has long hair, has tattoos, and he lived the lifestyle. He was a drag queen. I mean, he his life was a complete, uh, complete lifestyle of a of a homosexual, but he joined the church. He accepted the gospel, and uh, and when he comes to our ward, he comes every well, year. Tell the background: the first uh, his state president called. Yeah, us. his state his state president called us and asked us if we would uh, we would uh, entertain him as he went to Evergreen, and uh, they paid, they paid his way to 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 Provo to go to Evergreen, and so he did, and he stayed with us, and. Uh, and uh, we took him to church uh, every Sunday when he's when he's with us. And our ward has been unbelievable uh, with this young man. He's fifty five, fifty two, fifty two now. Uh, but uh, in fact, the last, last Sunday when he came to our to our ward, uh, uh, we sat on the front row, and here's this long haired guy sitting on the front row with tattoos on his arm, and and the bishop saw him. And got up out of his chair before before the meeting started. Got up out of his seat, walked around the 
the pulpit and the pews and came down and and hugged him and said, how's my friend? And and this was, you know, that's, he said, you've got the greatest bishop. And, and, and the bishopric, and everybody in the ward, how you doing? How you doing? How you doing? As he, as he goes down the hall. And, and the fact is that he's accepted. Uh, he's accepted and he's loved. And that's all there, that's as very, it's as simple as it gets. I think if we just understand, it's as simple as it gets. It's not a complicated thing to do. Uh, to love and to respect these young men because they're hurting. They hate themselves. Every one of them said, oh, I hate myself for, for feeling this way. But I feel this way. But if we just accept them as children of our Heavenly Father and reach out to them, and that's what we tried to do at our firesides. About seven years ago, we started holding firesides uh, in our home because two of the boys asked us if we would like to. And we said, sure. So we had six people attend the first fireside. We had it in our basement. And uh, we had the fireside, and we moved on. And it kept growing bigger and bigger. We moved to several, several uh, other facilities, and we finally met in the, in the church in the last, uh, last year and a half. But, uh, but our, what we do in our firesides is we don't shake hands when they come in the door. We hug. I mean, that's our greeting to these young men when they come in the door. We give them a hug. Because we know that some some people, some of these young men have said, I haven't been hugged all my life because people have just shunned me. So they haven't wanted to come close to me afraid I might contaminate contaminate their lives. But but a hug is a is a greeting of, of affection. And and these young men need that greeting of affection, not only verbally, but physically. And if we don't give it to it, they're going to us they're going elsewhere. So what kind of things have you uh, talked about at the firesides? Well, we don't, we don't really talk about the issue itself because we feel that they know enough about the issue themselves. We talk about situations. The speakers that we have are just speakers that have, have experience in a certain area in their life. Like we've had a, had a sister who's, who was blind after she got, uh, was married. And she talked about her challenges being, being a, a blind mother. <laughs> in fact, she lives right back of our daughter. And... Uh, and she calls her up and says, Catherine, would you come here and read this recipe for me? So I, I'm, I'm trying to bake something for my, my family. But, but we had a, a, young, a young sister who was, who was burned in how, how many part of her body? 60% of her body? 90%. And, and her face is scarred and she has no nose. And she talked about her challenge with people looking at her. And a young man who served two years in prison. Uh, and, and, and different challenges. And then other people, uh, gospel gospel scholars basically we've just tried to apply the atonement we we haven't wanted to talk about the subject of same gender feelings we wanted them to come we wanted the young men and young women we've had a few young women but some of them have just felt like it's mostly fellows and they don't feel too comfortable which is really sad because we haven't just wanted it to be for just men we've wanted it to be for both but for whatever reason, because it started out with fellows, I guess that's why it pretty much stayed that way. But but sometimes family members come, sometimes friends come. But we've really tried to make those who do come to feel that they're validated, that they're loved, that they're accepted. And it's been interesting when we started it here in our home with just six it was because uh, 
one of the fellows went to another fireside that was held in Salt Lake, and at that fireside, they were basically told, this is who you are, go off and do your thing and be happy. This is who God made you. And they didn't feel... In other words, go ahead and engage ahead in homosexual engage, behavior. Exactly, yes. exactly. And they didn't they feel... They were told that at a fireside? Well, well it, it was, was a hang-loose fireside. It, it wasn't in church. It was in somebody's home, and it was... The uh, messages that they were they were giving were not the right messages. You know, so, I mean, it was just a fellows meeting together, and it wasn't a fireside per se, but it was... They, they were members of the church yes. having a meeting on their own. Yeah, on their yeah, own, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so one of them came to us and said... Would you have a fireside? Could we start one here? We thought, fine, that's fine. So we just thought it would be in our home, not knowing that they really wanted us to provide more than just a place. So after two or three months, I thought, okay, it's getting to be close to Christmas. So I did a Christmas dinner for those, and there were 20. And then after that, we thought, no, we should have a speaker. So then we began to invite people to come to talk and um, and make it a spiritually uplifting meeting for those that came. We always opened with prayer and closed with prayer, and we always wanted to apply whatever was talked about as the, the basis of it was the atonement. The fellow that was in prison for a couple of years that was there for a crime he didn't commit talked about, and his family were there, and they talked how they dealt with it as a family, and it was the atonement. It was the atonement that helped them through, and the sister that was burned and disfigured, and the sister that was blind, and on and on. It, it was the atonement, and that's this. Every every fireside was meant with the purpose to strengthen their faith in the gospel of our Savior, to let them know that they were loved. And one of the reasons we hugged is that, uh, well, first of all, Stuart had a cousin who was ready to go on a mission, and he called Stuart. The cousin was at BYU, and Stuart at this time had graduated and was at home working. And he called Stuart and said, I just found out from my family that you have same-gender feelings. So do I. What do I do? And Stuart said, go on your mission. Come home and take one day at a time. And so he did, and I wrote to him faithfully for those two years that he was gone. And when he came home, he came back to BYU, and he came to our home for love and support. And then he brought a friend who brought another friend who brought another friend who brought another friend. And so bit by bit, we began to be known about there's somebody who you can talk to, somebody that will listen to you. And so they would come and share their feelings and so that's how basically the fireside started was because those that came were as a result of this. But Ty was one of those first to come to our home. And I hugged him as he left. And he said he went back to the car and sat there and thought, why did that woman want to hug me when she knows all about me? It was just so astounding to him that somebody could accept the fact that he had same-gender feelings. And when we had it in our home, there were times when I watched young men come for the first time, walk through the front door, and stand there and take a deep breath like, okay, here I am, all right, now what do I do? Because they basically are saying, I'm outing myself, and I've been in the closet, no one knows about this, and here I am. 
And for the first time, they have had to come to the terms themselves that they had because so many of them have been in denial. I don't have these feelings. They're going to go away. And so the firesides were meant to build up, to spiritually build up, to help them know the Savior's there walking with them the whole time. I was, I was going to say that the, that the firesides really had kind of a, a growth um, evolution. And one of the evolution was after we left our home and and uh, and met another place we were getting so big that we needed a, a hall to meet in. And uh, and we decided that uh, there was a, a place next to us built by Ivory, Ivory Homes. And so I went over there to see the facility. And uh, and it was a very good facility, and it would, would adequately house what we needed. Uh, but no one was there because it was Martin Luther King's birthday. And, uh, and so I came back on the next day, and the gal was there, and I talked to her. I said, do you... Uh, uh, allow people to to meet here, and she said, "Yes, we do." And she said, "But you have to be a member of the the club, or you have to pay two thousand dollars fee to to use the hall." And so I said, "Well," um, uh, she said, "What do you need it for?" And I said, "You remember the church?" She said, "Yes, I am." And I said, "Well, yes, so she'll I'll be able to tell her we may have a bunch of gays meeting here in the hall." Uh, and she said, "Fine," and, uh, and then I started explaining to her what she was uh, what we were doing. And she said, that's marvelous. And she just said, I'm interested. And she said, my father had this challenge. And she said, he was a bishop. And he committed suicide. And uh, and she said, I'll sponsor you. So that's how we got into that hall. And there's been many things along the way that we've felt the, the, the hand of the Lord in what we've been trying to do. And we've seen so many lives that have changed. We have a young man that uh, uh, came off his mission. He lived in Florida. And he um, he just felt he wasn't accepted uh, with anybody, so he just left the church. And for 12 years, he had a partner. And he lived a lifestyle for 12 years. And then uh, his partner got too involved with alcohol and so on, and so he, uh, he they split. And he came back to church just to see, I'm going to try again. And had a bishop that reached out to him had a stake president that put his arm around him and brought him in. And the bishop called him as a, as a primary teacher. He taught primary for a while, and, and the evolution continued to happen in his life. And, uh, and when he left Florida to come here, and he spent about three years here, and that's how we met him, he was stake young men's president. And it all happened because a priesthood leader reached out and, and saw the, the gift and the talent that this young man had. And knew that the Lord had forgiven him of his past past life, and it accepted him and brought him full fellowship into the church. And this is what the brethren are trying to tell us now, with the Otterson's comment uh, that uh, that the, was given after the petition in the church. The, the, the church is trying to say the Lord says these young men are worthy of every blessing that the Lord has to offer. Uh, they just have to. They uh, live the gospel, and they're worthy of everything. The feelings mean nothing. Uh, they, they're very devastating. They're, 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 they're things that they have to deal with, and we can help them deal with them. But as far as their worthiness is concerned, they're worthy for every blessing the Lord has to offer. And Elder, Elder Oaks was asked one time, why do they have these feelings? And he said, we don't know, and we may not know to the other side of the veil, 
But that's not the issue. The issue is what do you do with these feelings? Do you act on them, or do you remain faithful to the gospel of our Savior? Right, and that's actually encoded now in the, uh, like you mentioned, the Church Handbook of Instructions in Volume 2. Let me just read a paragraph from that. Um, It's from uh, paragraph 21.4.6. If members feel same-gender attraction but do not engage in any homosexual behavior, leaders should support and encourage them in their resolve to live the law of chastity and to control unrighteous thoughts. These members may receive church callings, If they are worthy and qualified in every other way, they may also hold temple recommends and receive temple ordinances. And so like you said, the church really has uh, tried to emphasize that there's really no reason why someone experiencing same-gender feelings can't be a full active member in the church, just like any other member of the church. Uh, And like any other member of the church, we all experience temptations and uh, feelings that, if if pursued, would would perhaps make us unworthy to participate fully in the church. So, you know, I think what you've been doing with these firesides is you've been creating an atmosphere for young men who are experiencing same gender attraction to be taught the gospel and to feel the spirit and to feel that they can uh, be accepted within that context, within that type of a group, um, you know, I think that what we're looking for in the future is for that type of atmosphere to exist in all of our wards in the church. Yeah, and make it a pleasant place for them to be. We have a a fellow that we know and love, uh, and he moved home. Uh, He lost his job, so he moved back home and he was asked to be the gospel doctrine teacher. Well, first of all, he was asked um, to have somebody, he was to be the home teacher to a family, and he's divorced, has same-gender feelings, um, but at any rate, the fellow that he was assigned to be the the home teacher said, I do not want to home teach this divorced man. He was prejudiced against him because he was divorced. Well, then, a couple of Sundays later, the discussion in Sunday school, somehow the subject of same-gender feelings came up, and they started in a very negative way of talking about those that had the feeling like they were sinful and perverts and uh, partakers of bestiality, and etc. And, and so our friend said, I sat there in the class And he said, my mother looked at me with that look, don't you dare say one word. And he said, I finally just said, you know what, I'm gay. And I've been asked to be the gospel doctrine teacher. He was teaching the next Sunday. (laughs) And he said, and I have a temple recommend, and I go on a regular basis to the temple. And then he bore this testimony, this fervent, powerful testimony of his Savior, and the class was really quiet. <laughs> and and I thought, isn't it a shame that it had to come to that, that people, as I said, kind, decent, faithful members of the church can really say cruel things when they simply don't understand. And if there's anything that 
we really saw as a result after Stuart's death when we had his memorial. Stuart, in his suicide letter to us, said he didn't want to be remembered as the dead Stuart. He wanted to be remembered as the living Stuart. So he said, don't have a funeral for me. And so we weren't in in respect for his desire. But as people came to our home, they said, no, you need to use this as a teaching moment. And so we he took his life on a Friday, and on Wednesday we uh, had a, a memorial for him. And Fred and I both spoke. And afterwards, for about an hour, people came up and thanked us so much for helping them understand because, uh, and then we received letter after letter um, apologizing to us for things that people, they said in the past that they had said unkind things or thought unkind things or had done unkind things and how it was such a learning experience for them at the memorial and how grateful they were. And, And so... Um, it's just all a matter of understanding because when people, we have found that once people understand, they are loving, they are supportive. That's why our ward is so loving and so supportive because we've been very vocal about Stuart because of this, also this fellow that has come for the last four years to Evergreen and the ward all knows that he has same gender feelings and they go up and they hug him and welcome him and he feels loved and he feels they, they accepted. They ask, how, how are you doing? And so on. The, the, the real key to this whole issue is understanding. Uh, in the in, in process of my thinking about the issue, I developed a, a thought process. It, it, to understand the same gender attraction, as simple as A, B, C. A, there's a difference between action and attraction. B, bottom line, this is not who they are or who they, they think they are. It's only a challenge or a feeling they have. And see, we spend too much time on the cause and the cure and far too much, far less time on the care. And that's all the understanding is about. It's as simple as A, B, C. And if we were to apply that, we would realize that, that these are choice, choice young men with great spirits. Uh, we have young men who are stake executive secretaries, who are members of bishoprics, who are temple workers, who uh, gospel. who gospel doctrine teachers, elders quorum presidents, award mission leaders. And why? You say, oh my goodness, how can they be that? Hey, they're that way because they're worthy to be that. Just because they have the same gender feelings doesn't make them unworthy. And that's what we have to get over. They are not unworthy. They just have feelings. It's not an illness. It's not a disease. It's not a weakness. It's just feelings that they have. They're afraid. The interesting thing about this is that, and and it's a shame, they're afraid that people will find out that they have these feelings. And why? What's uh, my my feeling? What else do you have for breakfast? I mean, it's just that simple. It's not a, it's not a, it's a big deal to them because they fear. They, they literally hate themselves. They literally fear people understanding. And why should they fear? Why should they have any fear about this issue? They should, they should, they should be gra- gra- grateful that people would, would understand so they could help. And, and this last week, I just sent an email to a young man who said that he was going to go on a mission, wanted, wanted to tell his parents, his 
bishop and a stake president suggested that he do so, but he was afraid to do so. And I just said that I felt sad as a mother that Stuart did not feel that he could share his feelings with me, that I did not let him know that I loved him and that he just felt that I would judge him for having those feelings. And I thought of all the times that we could have been praying for him, fasting for him, Fred could have been giving him blessings, all those many years that he struggled alone. And after he told us, I mean, he he would fly home on the weekend and all Saturday was just spent and he would well, I'll just say dump. He just dumped all of his feelings and the pent-up emotions that he had had for so many years. And it was just... It's a shame. It, it was a shame that he carried that, that burden alone. So when he first came to you and he... Well, I guess you get, you went to him and, and asked him, you know, are you experiencing the same gender attraction or are you gay? Uh, and he told you that he was. How did you react to that? I told him no matter what path he traveled, I would always love him. That was that was my parting comment to him as I left the room. I just said, Stuart, no matter what path you travel, I will always love you. That did not mean that I accepted him going into a relationship. That just meant that I was his mother and I would always love him. And so, and Fred was, I mean, we spent the entire year of his last year trying to show him that we loved him and supported him. And and we knew he was suicidal, and and we talked with a friend who had been really suicidal and had tried many times to commit suicide and had failed to do so. And I talked with him and said, what do we do? How can we help him? And he said, you will only delay the inevitable. But it's a sh- it's and a he shame. said, if you report him, they will put him in a hospital, and he will hate you for it. But it's a shame that, that in spite of our love and our acceptance and our uh, reaching out to him, he still feared. We he, really, still, he, was still, he still hated himself. He still feared what other people would think. We really feel if Stuart had known at an early age and how we he had felt known. and been accepting of it, that he wouldn't have taken his life, but not he, accepting meaning, uh, not, not accepting the fact that he he was gay and he lived a lifestyle, but but accepting that we loved him and that the war loved him and the, and and those that around him loved him. Well, and accepting of the fact that it, it's not sinful to be exposed to certain temptations. No, no, no. That, that we all are tempted with different things, and and in fact, we know that Jesus was tempted, and the scriptures tell us that he was tempted in all variety of, of ways, and yet we know that he was sinless. And I think this is one of the unfortunate messages that, that society at large um, gives us, is that you know if you're experiencing same-gender feelings, that you have no option but to engage in same-gender uh, sexual activity. So I think it's very important for people in the church who are experiencing those feelings to, to, to receive some of these messages that you've been giving people through through these firesides that you can be a fully active, um, participating member of the church. Uh, you can enjoy the blessings of the atonement even if you're experiencing temptations toward people of the same gender or if you feel tempted toward 
substance abuse or pornography or smoking or any of the other types of things that people maybe feel tempted toward, that if you're not engaging in that behavior, that there's no limit to the activity that you can participate in in church. And we have found that those who come to terms and stop feeling ashamed, uh, we, we know this one young man who went to what is called Jim, Journey into Manhood. And he went there um, for, it's a two-day, and he was, uh, it was held in Park City, and it's a two-day e- event that they have. And when he came back, he actually um, borrowed our truck to drive up there. And so when he drove back, and he got out of the car, and I happened to be in the front yard when he came up, and he grabbed me and hugged me and sobbed, and he said, I'm not ashamed anymore. I'm not ashamed. I took my shame into everything that I did in my life. Once they can get rid of the shame, and then they begin to accept the fact that they are a child of God, that they are loved, that God is there for them, and our Heavenly Father and Savior are both there for them, they can go and live productive, happy, fulfilling lives. We've met so many who in time have been able to get rid of the shame and to feel that they're they're a valuable uh, instrument in God's hand. You know, Elder Oaks taught us that all should understand that persons and their family members struggling with the burden of same-sex attraction are in special need of the love and encouragement that is a clear responsibility of church members who have signified by covenant their willingness to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, both of you have been involved in helping to bear the burdens of those who experience same-gender feelings. Um, you, you've talked about the firesides that you've held. Uh, you've wrote a book about your experience with Stuart. What are some of the kinds of things that other members of the church can do to help bear the burdens of those that are struggling with same-gender feelings? Love them. Just to love them. Really, it's, a, it's as simple as that. It's not any more complicated than that. I just think when the day comes when members of the church come to an understanding, and that's the key to the whole thing is an understanding. Once the members of the church come to an understanding, the love and acceptance is there. It just isn't something that has to be talked about or taught. It is just something that they, it's an atmosphere of love and acceptance. And it all comes from understanding. And I can see it happening. It's been 11 years since Stuart took it, 11 and a half years since Stuart took his life. And, and there's such a change, such a growing change of understanding that is taking place. That being said, there still is a long way to go. There's still people who do not understand it and, and remain saying unkind things. But for the most part, we can really see the beginning of things happening, and the brethren have been so loving and so supportive. We have been so grateful for the the statements of um, Elder Holland has written an article in the Ensign. Elder Oaks has written an article. There have been statements, public media statements that they have made of of saying that there needs to be love and support, and we're so grateful of everything well, well, that has been done. And and, and they're and they're. Uh, their concern is not on a ecclesiastical level uh, 
the Corp of the Twelve or seven, they've been on an individual level. They've reached out individually to a number of young men. There have been phone calls and letters and blessings that have been given. Not that the the brethren should be have their nor- door knocked on and said, I want a blessing or whatever. But there have been certain uh, fellows that we know that, for whatever reason, have met one of the brethren in that and there's been a friendship that has evolved because of a meeting. And so because of that friendship, there have been extended... And they've taken their personal time to call on cell phones to them individually. Yeah, that's, that's so encouraging to hear. I, I think that so often we get the impression in the media, or the media gives the impression to the world at large, that the Mormon church hates gay people. That's not true. And that the you know the highest levels of the church you know they've institutionalized homophobia, and you know it's it's great to hear these stories of of members of the twelve apostles, members of the first presidency, going out of their way to meet with individuals and specifically expressing those they feelings have. of love. They truly, truly have, and I mean we know we've heard their stories. The young men have shared their stories with the brethren, and as I say. We don't want to encourage people knocking on the doors of the brethren to have this happen, but it's just that there were certain circumstances where they were brought together. And because of that circumstance, there was a friendship that was formed. And and the love and the concern that has been there has been so genuine. There's been nothing but love and concern. And it's a shame that the church has been portrayed as being the bad guys. Um, there is... We know personally that they they meet and show love and compassion at all times and in every way. They're deeply concerned about this area, and it is being addressed. It's not being swept under the carpet. In your book, you mentioned that Stuart felt a lot of negativity being expressed toward gay people in California, where you were living at the time during Proposition 22. And uh, just for our listeners, as a reminder, Proposition 22 was the law that was enacted by California voters to restrict marriages to only marriages between opposite-sex couples. Uh, During that time, President Hinckley stated, I emphasize this, I wish to say that our opposition to attempts to legalize same-sex marriage should never be interpreted as justification for hatred, intolerance, or abuse of those who profess homosexual tendencies, either individually or as a group. And later the church confirmed that protecting marriage between a man and a woman does not affect church members' Christian obligations of love, kindness, and humanity toward all people. So as you've talked about how at the highest levels of the church you've witnessed expressions of love and fellowship, unfortunately sometimes the rank-and-file members of the church um, are not as, maybe sometimes not as willing to express those types of feelings. Maybe they, maybe they don't understand uh, the, the issues involved as well. What, what kind of advice would you give to just the rank-and-file members of the church? Um, how can they respond when they hear someone speaking negatively about people with same-gender feelings? To speak up. If you hear someone saying something that is cruel, inform them that it's not learned, it's not a choice, and to help them. You know, it's it's a one-on-one. It's an individual thing. 
I have spoken up in, in church, in Relief Society. I have spoken up when I've gone visiting teaching or or when home teachers come uh, or neighbors or friends or whatever. I am very vocal. Fred is very vocal about it's, it's showing ha- love. And it's, it's happening more and more now uh, where people speak. We had a young sister in a gospel doctrine class where it was brought up. She has a brother who has this challenge. And she stood up and, and said specifically that, that people do not accept them because they think they're, they're wicked and they're evil, and, and they're not. They're good, good, good saints and good members of the church and should be accepted as such. And so more, more and more people are beginning to step up, and not in a vindictive way or in a, in a, in a challenging way, but to let people know. Our, our ward is that way because we're so vocal. But uh, but there are other wards. There are other people. It, it, it's it's happening slowly but surely, and it needs to happen in more uh, more rapid uh, rapid way. I don't think it's happening as fast as the Savior wants as, it to as happen. As Elder Holland but, said, but it it is happening. It is happening, and the brethren are helping it to happen. But one of the things that that uh, what was said to us by a church leader that. You train bishops, you train stake presidents, and then they then they're released, and then you have to train again, and then they're released, and then you have to train again. And sometimes, um, a bishop or a stake president is new, and has not been gone to the meetings to f- learn about this issue, and so maybe he doesn't understand as well as he should. There was a time Fred just recently received a letter from a fellow that when Fred was bishop, and he said, I remember going to you, and it was before we knew about Stuart, so Fred was really clueless about this issue. And he said, I remember going to you and sharing with you my feelings, and you just looked at me like, I don't know how to help you because I don't understand this issue. And sometimes that happens because bishops and stake presidents really aren't informed yet. But once they do go to their their training meetings, their regional meetings, or whatever they go to for bishops and training sessions, and they're taught, then they come back with love and compassion and understanding. What he also said, he said, but I do remember that you did not condone me, nor did you condemn me. I mean, you're not condemn me, but you did reach out with love and understanding, even though you didn't understand you know, I think that there are probably a lot of people who would like to help and not really sure what to do. Um, sometimes, you know, we don't really get involved in something until it personally affects us. You know, we have a family member who's struggling with these issues, and so then we start to find out um, what kinds of things are out there. And even then, it may be difficult for people let, to know. Let me give you an example. Uh, when we had firesides in our home, uh, we had chairs we had to had to move, and cars were parked. I mean, it was like like the parking lot in front of our house. You have 90, 90 kids, 90 young men at our home for a fireside for refreshments. We had refreshments in our home. And one of the neighbors said, did you see all those cars in front of your, 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 your house? I said, well, what were they doing? You know, he knew what they were doing there. And the, the neighbor that really understood the issue said, did they park in your driveway? He said, no. He said, what are you concerned about? And that, those kind of things are what we're talking about. What can we do? To help. Well, Just understand it in a number of ways. Say, so? 
So what? And the what? And the, and the fellow said, "Oh, I'm I'm sorry." I, <laughs> well, he I went home and thought about it, and yeah. he said, came back and said, "You know, I've thought about what you said, and you're right. Why should I be concerned?" And so and, and it's, so it's just it's just the concern we have, the, the outreach uh, when this young man comes there and our to our ward, uh, the members say, "How you doing?" And and they 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 put their arms around him and they they make him feel at home and and uh, and he doesn't look like anybody else in the ward. Well, <laughs> he I, looks you, very differently. And I don't think that when you have these feelings that you need to announce it to everyone, like you walk into a ward and you're new or whatever, and say, "Oh, by the way, I I have same gender feelings." I mean, any more than you saying, "Oh, by the way, I'm heterosexual." It's just if. Or I have a drinking problem, or I smoke, or you know, I so do anything. You don't go out and announce it, or in your face and advertise it. But if you're in a situation where it is discussed, then you try to enlighten people so that they truly understand. Um, and and you shouldn't; those with these feelings shouldn't be ashamed of the feelings. And so, if you hear someone with those feelings, it doesn't hurt to go up and say. You know, I understand. I love you. Just a hug. Something simple. It doesn't have to be a big thing. You know, I wonder if there are some people who feel like in order to be loyal to the church and faithful to the church, Mm -hmm. that it's necessary to harbor animosity toward the homosexual community. Well, and some feel, and this, this is some parents feel this way and some members feel this way that if you say, I accept you having those feelings, you're condoning the activity because they can't separate the fact that feelings are separate from activity. There is a difference between action and attraction. And so they just feel like if I go up and I give them a hug, then that's saying I condone you going out and living the lifestyle. It's not that at all. You're just saying I'm hugging you because you're a child well, this of God. Is, this is what this couple that we knew, who has a son who has a partner, and that's the thing they're afraid of, that if they, if they accepted him, they would, he would give the, get the idea that they were accepting what he was doing, and they weren't at all. And finally, that message got through to them, and they've had the most spiritual experiences with their son and his partner that they've had on campouts. And, and this young man, and this, and this young man is, is more accepted. Now, what happens here? is that partnership may last, may not last. And more than likely, it won't. And, and if it doesn't, if they don't, have, don't reach out, where do they go? If that door has been open all the time, then they come back to where they, they feel comfortable and loved. Well, I thought it was really interesting, too, how there was a group who was uh, organizing a vigil uh, at the Stake Center in California, uh, on the anniversary of your son's death, mm-hmm. and that you, you wrote a letter, uh, an open letter to this group. Is that right? Yes, yes, begging them not to do this. And they said it's not a political thing, and I thought it is a political thing. You called the press. The television cameras were there. The newspaper reporters were there. I can understand the police being there because that's a busy street. It was by a hospital. Uh, and so I could understand the necessity of having... Um, the police there, but it was definitely a very political move, and and it it hurt us. It just really it just opened up another wound again. And I just thought it. I think the hardest part of Stewart's 
last year was the invasion of our privacy by the press, especially after his death. Well, you have been as supportive of people who are experiencing same-gender attraction who are church members as anyone I've ever heard of. And I think that it's a really, you know, I think that you give us a really great example of someone who is able to be entirely supportive of the church and supportive of people who are experiencing same-gender feelings at the same time, uh, that, you know, you don't want your son's death to be used um, as a political uh, statement uh, by anybody, and that you are you're able to be supportive of the church's position on same-gender marriage and at the same time supportive of people who are experiencing same-gender feelings and able to show love and uh, companionship and unity with them. Um, so I, I think that's an important message to people, that they can be supportive of people feeling same-gender feelings um, and, and at the same time be entirely supportive of the church. Yes, yes. And, 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 also, and also, and this may be taking a step, a step uh, into the, the dark, but if a if two members of the church have decided to um, be compatible and uh, and live the lifestyle, but they decide to come to church, that's a question that you say, "What do you do?" And the brethren say, "You accept them as members of the church." Well, you. You don't run them out any more than no, you run no, somebody no, out who no. is smoking. You don't anymore. agree with you agree with what they what they're doing, but you reach out to them, and you accept them and embrace them as members of the church. Right now, they may not qualify for a temple record. No, no, no they, they they may not even qualify for membership in the church or sacrament. Even. <laughs> or, right, but, but, but you want to the, accept them, them into the church into because the congregation because we have known fellows who have left the church, and return to church and and if they because that door was open because the door was open because if they were shushed out they would still be gone but they have been rebaptized because they felt they felt a need you know they left the church they were angry this one fellow left the church was angry with the church felt the church had abandoned him and then after several years felt this longing and this need in his life to come back to church and he came back, and a bishop reached out with love and compassion. He's been rebaptized. He is now active, and he's a gospel doctrine teacher. So you never close the door. Yeah, that's a great example. Uh, you know, in addition to the group that was trying to hold a vigil on the anniversary of Stuart's death, uh, your story has also been used in a uh, movie documentary. Um, there's been at least one play that I've heard of that was based on your story. Um, how have you reacted to that? Well, with the Mesa Solemnus, the stage show was off-Broadway, which are, there are a ton of plays on this issue of same-gender Mormons. I mean, it's just kind of, where do you go when you're mad at the church? You put on a play off-Broadway. Well, I called the director and asked him not to to do this. And they changed the name from Frank to Fred and Marilyn to Carolyn, but because of Stewart's was deceased, they legally could do it. Fred talked to an attorney to see what we could do, and legally there wasn't anything we could do. 
a young man who used to come to our firesides and now back east went there and talked to the director and said he felt like it was inappropriate. When Fred talked to the director, actually it was the playwright, uh, the author of the play, and Fred said, you know, Stuart's story had been told, and he said, no, I want to tell the real story of Stuart, which was, you know, it was a political thing. It was an anti-Mormon thing, and so it's... Have, have either of you read the script for that play? No. No, no. we've just been told about it, and what we've been told about really hurts Those us. who've seen it I, have I mean, told us. Yes, those that have gone to see it and, and said it, it really is a shame how they've portrayed Stuart and... I mean, I don't. I don't want to make statements of what supposedly was on the stage because I haven't seen it. I just it's hearsay of what was there, but it was extremely hurtful and misrepresent. If what they're telling me is true, which I'm assuming it is, completely misrepresents Stuart, and is extremely hurting to us as his parents because Stuart, there was no one that tried harder to do what Heavenly Father and the Savior wanted them to do. No one tried harder to be perfect. No one gave more to his Heavenly Father and Savior than Stuart. And to have him so poorly misrepresented. And you go on the Internet, and he is he is represented. He is the king for those that are against the church, and there are those that are, you know, here is an example of somebody who stayed noble and true to the cause of truth. He's used for both. He's all over the place. And um, the only thing I can do as a mother is to pull a page out of the Book of Mormon with Pahoran and say, it mattereth not. I know who my son was. I know of his valiancy. I know his testimony. And I know the testimony that he gave to me because it was Stuart who helped me understand the atonement. It was Stuart who brought me closer to my Savior. I'd gone through an entire year seeking to understand the atonement better. And after a year of studying and reading and searching and serving, fasting and praying and begging and pleading to understand the atonement, I finally went to my Heavenly Father and my Savior and said, Whatever you ask of me, I will do it if you will just help me understand the atonement more. And two weeks after offering that prayer, Heavenly Father sent me on a path that in my wildest dreams I never thought I would travel. It was a path filled with anguish and sorrow, but is a path I'm grateful to have traveled because it was Stuart who helped me understand the atonement. It was Stuart who strengthened my faith in my Savior. So after you gave that prayer, you said that within two weeks that, that you it, started on that path. What happened? Well, that's later? when our daughter came to us and said, what would you do if you found out Stuart was gay? So that's when I went in and asked Stuart, and he said, yes, Mother, I am. And that opened up the door to an understanding of an issue that I was totally ignorant completely ignorant. There was a time when our youngest son was on a mission to in New York, New York. And so we flew back because with each of our children, as they went on missions, we always would go meet them in the mission field and, and tour the mission with them. And so we were on this plane, and everyone on the plane had same-gender feelings or gay. They were gay. 
I mean, there's no other way. They were gay. It was cross-dressing. It was everything. And they were all flying back to New York to um, march in the gay parade. And it was a chartered flight, and it was a special deal. We flew into New Jersey from there into to New York, and, and then we flew back, and, and our son had his badge on that said, um, you know, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And so here all these people on the plane are asking him about it and so forth. But when we came back, there there happened to be a young man on that plane and I really feel that Heavenly Father wanted me to talk to that fellow because he was sitting right next to me and he had same gender feelings and he was as straight looking as anybody could be. And he was going back to meet with a brother and a sister who also had three in the family had same gender feelings. And he was the one that introduced this whole issue to me he was not a member of the church. He was not even an American. He'd come in from South America, and he spent six hours talking to me and helping me understand that it's not a choice and it's not learned, and he hadn't acted on it. He himself had not acted on it. His brother and his sister had, but he, not a member of the church, had chosen not to act on it. It was so revealing to me. I completely did not understand this issue did not understand. I didn't know about Stuart then at that time. I, and so when I first learned about Stuart, I was grateful for that experience because it was something that I could draw upon to to reflect on. My first reaction to Stuart was, who taught it to you? That was my first thought. And then Stuart said, I didn't learn it from anyone, Mother and then went in to explain it to me. And, and for two hours, Stuart talked to me and helped me understand this issue, which was an enormous blessing because when Fred and I discussed it, we were able to go from there to build what that young man on the plane had told us, to build what Stuart had shared with us with his experience of, of his feelings and his sadness, his anguish, his sorrow, and his effort to try to overcome it. And... And we just took it from there and tried to make him feel that he was loved and accepted. So when you say that this whole experience has taught you about the atonement, what is it that you've learned about the atonement through this experience? I think the one thing um, is the Garden of Gethsemane. There came a time each Saturday, as every Friday night, Stuart would fly back from New York or Boston or back east, wherever he was, on assignment. And and so Saturday was spent. He would just unload all of his concerns and sorrows. And his pain was becoming my pain. And I thought, I know what the Garden of Gethsemane feels like. I was enduring one child pain, a pain I had never experienced, never thought I would ever experience this. And as I thought about it, our Savior endured everyone's pains as profoundly. I mean, my anguish, my pain for Stuart was so deep and so profound that it made me realize how my Savior, the pain that he endured, is just unfathomable. 
And I think that's probably the thing I learned the most of all is the pain of Gethsemane. And, I mean, we all know that there are two deaths, the physical death and the spiritual death. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Savior overcame the spiritual death. And then on the cross, he overcame the physical death. And all the pain in Gethsemane came back on the cross. And I thought, I began to recognize and to partially feel to some, you know, minute way of of the pain our Savior felt because I had never experienced such profound pain for someone else that I felt for Stuart. And after experiencing that pain for your son, how did that help you in the future in your relationship with others? Well, as the steward said, you know, those that have same-gender feelings are kind because they hurt so much they want to reach out with love and compassion to someone else. And that's really been the sole purpose and desire that Fred and I have had of trying to help parents understand help young men come to terms with not coming, not being ashamed of the feelings, but to accept that this is a challenge that they have and that this challenge that they have will draw them closer to their Savior, that this very challenge that they have is a blessing to them in the way that they can draw closer to their Savior than they've ever been before. If, if everything were so easy for them, they, life there would be no purpose in them trying to draw closer to their Savior. You know, that's a great message for all of us. All of us have burdens to bear. All of us face trials and adversity, and they're meant to test us. They're meant to help us to gain experience, and that if we can look at them in the proper perspective Mm -hmm. and cast our burden on the Lord, it can draw us closer to the Savior and help us to become more Christ-like. Brother and Sister Mattis, in, in both of you, I think I've I see people who have been changed by the atonement and have been uh, transformed into people who want to be willing to bear one another's burdens and and make the burdens of people who are experiencing same gender attraction lighter. And uh, it's it's an inspiring thing for me to to see that. Is there anything else that you would like to share with uh, with our listeners about your experiences? I think we pretty much told it's been. And life changing to us, it's really, really set us on a path that we knew never knew we'd be on. But it's taught us so much, and we have met so many wonderful, gifted, talented, spiritual young men uh, in this journey. And they're our close friends. I mean, we get calls from New York, from Arizona, on a regular basis, and just from England, from all over the place, just because they want to talk to us and uh, and because we have an ear to listen and a heart that uh, that feels their pain and what they're going through. And if the world could just, and the members of the church could just uh, sense that, they would be blessed also. And they would feel that those blessings. I mean, it's been marvelous. We haven't, we haven't doubted, haven't, we haven't not, not doubted, but we haven't... Uh, um, regretted, regretted any, any moment of it. Everything we've been able to do has been, been a blessing. Questions or comments about this episode 
can be sent to podcast at fairlds.org or join the conversation at fairblog.org. Tell your friends about us and help increase the popularity of this podcast by subscribing in iTunes and by writing a review. Music for this episode was provided courtesy of Lawrence Green. The opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or of FAIR.